You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Uh, we're glad to be here. Um, as we wrapped up last time, uh, David was getting kicked out of the king's court in Gath. Gath. Yeah, yeah, and we we kind of wrapped up with uh, looking at how the story at Gath and the story of Nov played together. And we're going to look at a psalm that talks about this time. What I found interesting is the psalm actually confirms how the stories play together. But it does the does so through what is probably a scribal error. So um, I found this just to, to be fascinating. So one of the things we're going to be doing as we go through the rest of David's story is we're going to try to pull in the Psalms where they're appropriate, mm-hmm. so that we can see how they play off uh, the story and maybe enlighten us a little bit about to what's going on within Samuel and the Book of Kings. So um, it, it's a lot of fun because it does change how you read the Psalm. And I was surprised at how much more impact the psalm had for me personally as, as I read through it in connection with David. And, you know, that's one of the dangers of doing any kind of Bible study is even though I'm, quote, doing it for a working reason is, you know, occasionally you just get smacked upside the head with what the Bible has to say to you personally. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I, <laughs> when I was working for the, the company writing those sermon outlines, mm-hmm. oh, man, there was so much stuff that you, that you, you come across. I mean, and, and it is, it's like anytime you are teaching something, you're learning Yeah. if you're doing it right. Hopefully, hopefully. And, you know, and I really don't think you can teach something you haven't learned. Um, I mean, you can speculate and talk around it, but you I, can regurgitate things you haven't learned, but yeah. you can't really teach them. So, yeah. And what, what Psalm number were we in? We again? are in Psalm 34. 34. Okay. And so we're going to, I want to talk a little bit about how the Psalms are set up uh, before we get really into the Psalm, because, um, yeah, cause we haven't done a whole lot of work. We've, we've mentioned some Psalms, but we haven't done like a seriously focused episode on a psalm yeah now psalms there's several different kinds of psalms there's teaching psalms there's acrostic psalms there's um thanksgiving psalms there's psalms of ascent um and each psalm is used for a specific kind of purpose and they're read at various uh, holidays this holiday this one actually is read at rosh kadesh Uh, so we have that connection back to um that which i thought thought was interesting uh but we'll talk about each psalm as we as we go through it and um, this, what style of psalm it is. So we don't just go down a list of this is what an acrostic psalm is for and this is what, a, you know, sure. we, that way, hopefully a little bit more interesting. Um, this one in particular is an acrostic psalm. And so we, we're going to talk more about that as we get through it. So we'll, we'll start with the superscription. The superscription, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that a fun uh, descriptor there? That's the title that you have at the beginning of a psalm. Right. So this psalm... I forgot what they were called for a second. Yeah. Like, I know, I know, I know <laughs> I've heard the term, but it just... It, yeah. It sounds funny when it's said out loud. I almost never hear it said out loud. I read it mm-hmm. at times, but yeah. Anyway. It, yeah. So. Well, and, and what their, their purpose is, is to tell you who wrote the psalm, what specific event it was written for, how it's supposed to be used. Sometimes they'll tell you what instruments should be used with the psalm. And so these kind of give you some descriptors. Now, this one begins with, uh, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and went away. Now, David did not change his behavior before Abimelech. And as a matter of fact, Abimelech isn't even anywhere in the story. Yeah, it was Achish. Yes. And so um, we have to figure out what the psalm could be talking about. Now, the proposed solutions are that, you know, simply the writer of the superscription, which was added after the psalm was written, um, confused the two men. Uh, He confused Ahimelech and Achish, but we still have this problem because it's not Ahimelech in the psalm superscription that's named, it's Abimelech. And so there's also the possibility that the, the Ahim 
and the FM were the, the way it was spelled. It was just a misspelling there. The third possibility is that Abimelech is the title of the kings of the Philistines. So, And you said this is in Psalm 34? Uh-huh. The super, because yeah. mine doesn't say that. Oh, really? Because mine does. Um, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. No, mine, mine doesn't say that at all. Huh. What was your say? Psalm 34, right? Uh-huh. 34, 3, 4. Uh-huh. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, right. there it is. <laughs> it's, it's in the verse. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's another thing. When you look at um, different Bibles, some Bibles will put, this at, put the title or that superscription as verse 1. Yeah, and some... I was also on a different psalm before. I was in, I was in 43 before, so that helped. No, I get that. We, we both do that. Transpose <laughs> the numbers. Yes, and then some psalms, uh, some uh, translations will put the uh, superscription as a title above the first verse. So sometimes finding, lining up the verses and trying to find the same verse can be interesting. Probably in that one, and I'm taking a guess here, the superscription is going to be the first verse. It, it is in this. Yeah. And it's the first verse in the, in my ESV too. Okay. So on my ESV, which is newer, it's not. Huh. So, yeah. So, um, but yeah, so the, the idea that Ahimelech or Abimelech, sorry, would be the title, like uh, Pharaoh is the title of all the kings in Egypt. So Abimelech would have been the title of the king of the Philistines, which then it would apply to Achish and it would be completely correct. So it's not really that big of a, uh, of a confusion here. So uh, I think it, we have several possibilities that line it out nicely. And um, before we get into the psalm itself, one of the things we want to talk about, there, there's this story, and I think it's a great story. Uh, it's not in Scripture. It, it is um, completely extra-biblical. But there's a story that David was talking to God about the beauty of creation. And he told God how he could see beauty in all creation. He could find um, God's design and purpose and redemptive power and all that he saw around him. The only thing he couldn't find beauty in was madness, that the, he could see no beauty, no purpose in it. And God tells David that one day he will pray for madness because he will have need of it. So uh, this, this is the psalm where, that David wrote to thank God traditionally to thank God for the madness that he was able to put on display in Gath. So like I said, the psalm, this psalm is an acrostic. Um, so there's a verse for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22, um, 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The only exception is Vav, and that might be actually found in the middle of verse 6. But the problem is, if we say that that is for Vav, then... Um, there's only one line of poetry for the hey and one for love where all the other letters get two lines. Now, we've had other acrostic poems that we can talk about that we'd actually, uh, one of them was missing the mem. And uh, we've actually, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found the mem and a lot of your ESV translations will uh, include that. I can't remember the number Is that right 119? Now. I think it is 119. Because that's the one that's known for being like the... Mm -hmm. large acrostic. I, I believe you are correct. So, uh, and a lot of times, it, even if your Bible doesn't have it, they'll put it in a footnote just so uh, you can see how, you know, that there is something for that place. Um, acrostic poems are written specifically to help with memorization. And they would be written with great care about their theological messaging. They, they, you would not create something for someone to memorize about God that was not specifically crafted to reflect the truth about God. So, you know, this isn't sloppy songwriting. This is actually very tight, very concise, very well executed kind of writing. And so the idea that even in your songs of praise and thanksgiving, which this is also a thanksgiving psalm, it, it crosses those boundaries, but in that Thanksgiving, you should be very careful with the theology you present. It is very apparent, and we should learn from that in the Psalms here. So um, just because something sounds good in a song doesn't mean it needs to be written, particularly when we're talking about God. So with the, the superscription, there is a great deal of um, debates on these just in general not just concerning this one in particular, uh, were they 
part of the actual psalm where they added later who added them was the person who added them actually attributing them to attributing them to the right moment in David's life. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know. Uh, I tend to lean towards um, the idea that whoever wrote them had very good reason to put them with the psalms <clears throat> that they did. And what this does is gives us a historical framework through which to view the, the, and interpret the theological messagings of the Psalms. So also, if you, you view the superscriptions as part of the Psalm, it, it kind of reinforces that artistry of the Bible. Yeah. And so these, these Psalms were not just written about specific instances, they were written to be sung during specific instances. And despite the specific specificity, yes, that's 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 the way I was trying to go for. Um, they they do have a universal application, so we we want to be able to hold the the two things in contra in, in tension that it can be speci- speaking of a specific moment, but we can also see that it can the principles can be drawn out and applied today. So according to my Bible. This is verse one, having passed through the, his, this ordeal with Saul, having been humiliated. I'm sorry. I'm, uh, sorry. Let me read the verse. That's what I was going to do. Hmm. Um, it's always a good idea. Yeah. In doubt. I, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall come continually, shall continually be in my mouth. So the, the commentators, and I'm going with mostly Jewish commentators from the Art Scroll book um, on Psalms. Uh, this is the reason, because, you know, they, they knew the culture. But they said that having passed through his ordeal with Saul and having been humiliated by having to pose as a madman, David vows, vows to bless the Lord at all times. And so this is his vow for praise and worship to become a consistent way of life. Now, we, we have reason to believe that he, he did this before when he confront Saul with before he goes to Goliath, you know, he talks about his thankfulness for God's power and authority to save him from the bear and the lion. But the the rabbis say this marks a shift in David's life when he goes from, you know, it, it being just something he does when something great happens to actually realizing that praise and worship is valuable even in the most humiliating of times. Mm-hmm. So in verse two, we have the, this line that says, let the humble hear and be glad. Um, we're going to hear more about the humble in David's life we're gonna, when we get to chapter 22 of First Samuel, but we're going to find out that the, the humble, uh, the, the marginalized, the, the ones who don't fit in proper society, they are, they're drawn to David. Mm-hmm. They, they, they love him. And the, the humble on a universal level are people who can't help themselves. There's people who, who don't have a way out of their current uh, situation. They need to know that God can deliver. God can save. God is faithful to do so. And David's saying, look at what he's done for me. He can do it for you. And this is why they hear and they, and they be glad. But in the, in this gladness, they're, they're doing more than just praising God. They, They are joining together to create a community. And these humble that join David are actually going to be the basis of David's reign. They're going to make up David's royal courts. And there is a full reversal of social circumstance under David's reign that I sometimes think we forget. And we forget that he brings these people who were nobodies Mm -hmm. and he makes them the most important leading citizens of, of the kingdom. But when they join together here in the psalm to praise, they're saying, that we, we're accepting the one who was in crisis back into our community, but we're also saying that we are a part of this community and that the community is formed by those who have been in, been in crisis, those who have been delivered by crisis, and maybe those who are still in crisis. So verse five, and I, I did skip some because I think they're, they're kind of uh, self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there's several lines here, so I didn't want to spend all day on this one. But verse five says, those who look at him, and he's talking about God, are radiant. And we're supposed to be reminded of Moses when he comes down from Sinai and he'd spent so much time with God that his face glowed and he had to cover his face with a veil so that people could even look at him. And well, David is saying, those who see God 
in their everyday circumstances, in, in the, the, the humiliation and the hard times of this life, have that same opportunity to be radiant. Maybe not, you know, literally as, as Moses was, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally, that they can radiate God's goodness back to them. Now, if you remember our, our discussion on Rosh Kodesh, you began to see how this psalm plays into those themes uh, of Rosh Kodesh because the moon does not shine with its own light. It, it radiates with the light of the sun being reflected from it. So verse six, the angel of the Lord encamps around, uh, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. So we have a little bit of supernatural um, flavor starting to pop up here. And, and this isn't an echo of that wilderness journey. You're going to find a lot of Psalms are going to refer back to Genesis. They're going to refer back to Exodus. Mm -hmm. David very much sees himself in line with um, this heritage where he is replaying these events that help form the nation. Now these events are happening to him in a kind of a microcosm, and they're helping form and shape him as a person, just like those wilderness journeys help shape and form the nation of Israel into, into a cohesive community and really set them apart. They weren't Egyptians. They weren't going to be confused for Canaanites. They were a distinct nation. And now David is part of this distinct nation. And as such, he has the right to expect God's protection in the form of the angel of the Lord who is with them in those wilderness journeys. And we know that this angel of the Lord stayed with them up until Judges 2. And that's where God says, uh-uh, no, done. And, and the angel of the Lord withdraws. So David is saying that there's a way to reclaim the, this kind of intimate relationship that Israel once had where God was present in their midst. So I, I, there's, there's a lot packed in here mm. that unless you know the stories, the Psalms don't have the depth that they could. Yeah, and I do, th I do think it's interesting because we did talk about that um, in as we were going through Genesis is it Genesis or no uh, Judges? Because we we mentioned the Judges thing. We talked about the angel of the Lord living with the Israelites, like he he camped with them. Yeah, and we see this, and then we see again uh, when we get to John mm -hmm. that you know if, if we assume the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus, mm -hmm. then we look at that and we go that language there is that he came to Earth he. Encamped, he, uh, he struck a tent. Yeah, yeah, is the is the word. Yeah, he and, he actually it, it it means he tabernacled with them. Yeah, he, so, yeah, he he lived in a tent with us, mm -hmm. and so which would be you encamp. And mm -hmm. so I I thought that's kind of an interesting connection there. Yeah, and you know, think about how radical this is because you know for us the idea that God is with us that the Holy Spirit accompanies us, um, you. Know, these are kind of you know givens of the Christian faith, but in Judaism, at, particularly at this time, you didn't have that same individual, personal, intimate relationship. It was mm. God dealing with the entire nation, and yeah, you had a few people here and there. But David's promise—I mean, this isn't just for himself. He—he's promising it for for everyone who is with him, and you know those who look those—that's plural. Mm -hmm. uh, so. The idea that God would actually deign to be with not just Saul, the king who reigns from his throne, but these humble people who surround David, this is, this is huge. This, mm -hmm. this is a radical shift in, in ideology. So I'm going to skip down to verse 8, and it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I think a lot of us have seen this um, you know, hanging in somebody's kitchen. Uh, I, I know I have. But this is an invitation to see and to experience God's beauty and creation. And as it reveals the beauty of the creator, not that the creation should be worshiped, but the creator who would care to give us so many good things. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the scripture when Jesus says, you know, if you, if you, if a child asks for bread, does he get a stone? Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's well, and see my connection, whenever I think of this verse, what I always think of is, you mentioned like when you're teaching children Torah, when they get when they say something or learn something from Torah, you reward them by giving them them honey. Yes, and that's where this connection to me comes in. And there is definitely that connection there, and that is part of the the idea of when you teach Torah that you teach God's word is sweet, and that's the reason why you give honey. 
and uh, the the idea that the senses can be elevated and can you can find enjoyment through your senses is something very unique to this time period. We're mm-hmm. we're moving into a place where a lot of the times when you read when you read through the Torah and you read through a lot of the, the stories, it's almost like the senses are bad. And I know a lot of Christians who who have this idea. Um, one of the the accusations thrown against me was I'm too sensual because I like the things that make my senses, you know, the excitement my senses. And you know, this is we're talking like a sunset. We're talking that full moon. We're talking mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. good food. I mean, if y'all guys haven't picked up, we like good food here. We like good food. <laughs> so, um, and there, there's this idea that it that we as Christians and we as followers of God shouldn't enjoy these things because you know we're just supposed to be in suffering and misery all the day long but we forget that god created some of these things for us to enjoy and to enjoy very much matter of fact i love in the jerusalem talmud there's this teaching that you should seek out new foods just to eat them so that you can try them and see what god has given the world to enjoy i can get behind that (laughs) i i'm i'm with you but beyond just just Enjoying God's creation, eating is something you do in community. It's again that that call to return to community and and to appreciate what God's creation together and, and to to have this unity. And remember how many of the sacrifices they didn't just go give them to the temple and walk off. Mm-hmm. They stayed and they ate and they ate with their families. I mean, go back to... You know, that's something I didn't know until a couple of years ago. I don't doubt that it. The sacrifice was a, was a communal meal. Right. Because I had always been told that you throw it on the altar and it burns up. And mm-hmm. then, you, then you have the pastors who... You, I think I may have mentioned this on the show <laughs> before, but it, I, I think it's... Uh, you know, the, the, everyone's probably heard at some point in their life, you know, we're called to be living sacrifices. And the problem with the living sacrifice is it wants to crawl off the altar. Right. Well, the sacrifice was never meant to stay on the altar. Right. Uh, certain uh, parts, certain but parts, no. but there were parts of the sacrifice that were supposed to go back out and nourish the community. Exactly. It, it, that we aren't just supposed to sit, sit on the altar waiting to be, you know, waiting for Jesus to come back, not interacting, not helping people, not, improving our community and our relationships and our families. Well, and, and, you know, take that a step further. If you don't put anything up there as a sacrifice, what are you going to eat? You right. only get fed when you're willing to sacrifice mm-hmm. that. That's another part of that. But, you know, the, the priest who, who took too much, Eli and Hofni, I'm uh, sorry, Finkos and Hofni, mm-hmm. God had a problem with them. Yeah. God killed them. So it's, it's the idea that you don't take what you don't deserve but you should joyfully receive what God said should return to you. Sure. And, and it isn't, you know, oh, I gave everything up for the Lord. I mean, really? Yeah, we uh, see where that <laughs> attitude gets you an ax. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's... <laughs> maybe we'll get there one day. So uh, we're going to skip down to verse 10. Uh, the lions suffer but hunger, and those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, this is an interesting verse, but again, you've got to have uh, context. Uh, the context here is in ancient Near Eastern culture, lions were often represented as the powerful fool and the one who did not revere, revere God. So okay. con- you contrast this. This is not the the roaring lion seeking who he, he uh, the roaring lion who's seeking who he can devour. This is um, the lion who is starving because he is completely dependent on his own ability. And David points to hunger that, that results from self-sufficiency and arrogance and, you know, fear of the Lord, the dependence on the Lord, desire for the Lord. This is, this is what gets you to that place where you don't lack anything. And I, I don't even think he's talking about, um, material well-being. I mean, cause right now while David's writing this, he's on the run from Saul he doesn't, he didn't even have a sword. And so here's this guy who's talking about not lacking anything. What the heck? I mean, is he just delusional or does he recognize that God really will provide if we just hold on? Because when now we're seeing how the Psalm, 
it's not somebody who's just doing okay, telling everybody else, buck up, buddy, you know, you can do it. it. And it's really interesting that the line is, those who fear the Lord lack nothing. Yeah. Okay. You were just mentioned that he was without a sword, but it didn't really seem like he was being terribly fearful when he went and got the sword. Exactly. So it's... (laughs) That's kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna go through this kind of uh, th- this reversal that's going on with, with David in the through this psalm. So we're gonna we'll get there. So verse eleven, uh, he says, "I will teach you the fear of the Lord." Now, this this is kind of an interesting idea to be taught the fear of the Lord. Um, there is this aspect, you know, a lot of times we talk about the fear of the Lord that that there's this great big God up in heaven who's just waiting to punish you for his sin. Uh, I had a friend who used to hang out with me and said she kept waiting for lightning to strike every time we were around each other. Um, This was a time when I was really, really questioning God. But that was her view of God, that God was just, you know, I was going to be struck by lightning for daring to to question. But the the focus on this is awe. It's not fear as in I, I, I just, God's going to kill me if I, if I do something wrong. It, it's, he's so much greater and beyond my comprehension that the only thing I can do is be in awe of him. Mm-hmm. And it has to be taught. It has to be, and I think that's what interests me the most, that it's not something that we come to naturally. I, I think that if, in our own power, we just get to that place of fear of punishment but when we have somebody walk alongside us and show us the way that God has demonstrated his love through these good things, through these things we can enjoy with our senses, now we can move past that place of you know, paralyzed trembling and actually be in awe of a God who, who loves us and a God who, who is holy and mm-hmm. has those two attributes operating in tension. Right. And so you know, the rabbis taught that, that that fear of punishment is actually very self-defeating because it, it removes the reward for, for um, obedience. Yeah. And it actually leads to bitterness and anger and frustration. And I think we all know people who... Well, and we, and we see that in the parable of the talents. We do. I mean, we see it. I mean, that's, that's such a, a great teaching. And uh, Tim Mackey does a fantastic sermon on that. Um, I will put that in the show notes. It's great because it, it's so much, there's so much more to that story than what we were taught growing up. Uh, usually so, is. <laughs> um, well, I mean, yeah, that's kind of the, the theme of the show. And if we're, and if we're not covering it and we know someone who is, we'll, we'll try to get you there. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it, um, kind of a side note, but I was talking to somebody, um, actually it was Linda. She's in our paddle store too. Talking to her earlier this week. And, um, you know, one of the things that I really hope is that people outgrow us, that at some point what we're offering is so simplistic to them that they don't even, they want to go to somebody who teaches more in depth. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's kind of where I think we should all be as Christian teachers mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. who share. I, I want people who hear what I'm saying to, to outgrow us at some point. And because uh, that means I'm doing my job well. Right. And right. so, but I, this idea of being taught to, to fear is, it's so huge because the, the focus is on the fact that God deserves the awe and we aren't going to be ruled by human perception, that our perceptions of God are, are defined by what's revealed about him in, in the Torah. Mm-hmm. So... I. And I'm, I'm, these, the, I'm looking at these, the two different translations here. I've uh-huh. got the, the JPS and I've got the ESV and I find the wording on these things to be subtly interesting. The, Wh- the which one are you looking to, at? To translate it. And, um, it's the, come listen, I'll teach you the, what the fear of the Lord is. And in this, in this one, it's verse 13 in the JPS, but it's, I think it's 12 in the ESV. Mm-hmm. Says, who is the man who is eager for life, who desires years of good fortune? Okay. Mm-hmm. And twelves. Uh, what man is there who? What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? So, a little, couple little subtle things. Mm-hmm. 
what man is there versus who is the man? Right. One of them sounds like there's not a man who desires life and to see good. Keep talking. <laughs> the other one, the, the other part of that is to, to, to uh, seek life and see goodness. But this one says, um, uh, what does this say? Who desires many, who, who desires years of good fortune. And that's a very, very different, different way, especially when you, when you tack on all of the baggage of the way that the church defines good versus good fortune. Though, I mean, just yes. the, the contrast between the way these two are, are translated is, to me is, is staggering. Uh, yeah. Cause I, okay. Now I'm looking at the, the Hebrew here and it, it is, um, me who uh haish the man uh who desires chayim uh, and loves many days that he may they will uh, see good so good fortune is not in there uh, fortune has nothing to do with that well, that's, that's interesting because the good fortune is in the jps okay now sometimes the jps can actually have a little bit more liberal um a little bit more liberal slant to it. Now the, the ESV, I will have to say, despite some of the problems I've mentioned before, they do do a very good job at word for word translation right. most of the time. However, I did find a discrepancy in one of the future Psalms. So we'll talk about that. Okay. But, but it is good. The, the Masoretic text says Tove, um, to see Tove. Okay. Uh, they wrote, um, it wrote, sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't try to do this on the supply. Sure. Uh, no, I, but, I get it. Yeah. Well, and, and then later, later, farther down, like the, the JPS sees seek integrity. The mm-hmm. ESV says seek peace. Uh, yeah. Totally different. So I, I, it's just, well, it's interesting because peace uh, and integrity. I get that. Cause, uh, peace in, in, in um, in Hebrew shalom is wholeness, wholeness. Yeah. So that, that kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. but, but then you lose the connections. Right. And so that's the reason why we need to be careful with our translations. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the verse 12, you know, who is the man that there, what man is there, or who is the man that, that desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Uh, you know, a man with the ability to, to see God at work within creation, no matter what his sacri- uh, circumstances, will love life. Yeah. But, s- uh, yeah. And, and I, <laughs> I love that this is like, Who's the man who seeks good? Then gives you a description, and then this one says, "What man is there?" Yeah, it kind of. Well, but I, I now know. we're going back to the total depravity, and I, I know that I know that this has a very uh, Calvinistic leaning in the translation, and, and you it, can see it sometimes very, yeah, very clearly. Yeah, that was that was one where it just popped right out there. <laughs> yeah, I totally didn't catch that, but I think you're more sensitive to that. But but you know when we when we stop seeking God, when we stop seeing God at work in creation, and we fail to taste His goodness, to taste and see His goodness, life becomes burdensome. And so the the psalmist is telling you if you want to see good then th- this is your desire should, should be for God. And we see that in the context. So verses 13 and 14, uh, David explains how we see good. And I, I love this because, okay, yeah, I want to see good, but how do I do it? So here, here's the life lesson. This is, this is what makes it work. Uh, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Now, we haven't got to the point yet in the story where we find out what happens with Doeg. Uh, that's going to come up later, but we find out that Doeg takes what he sees and he goes back and reports to Saul. And mm-hmm. so he, and he actually lies to Saul about what he saw. And so David is describing Doeg right here. Okay. So, and he's also s- describing himself in the second point, because the second point is turn away from evil and do good. David will talk about how he failed to do good in this moment with the priest and that the fact that he, he turned away from evil, Doeg. He recognized Doeg as Saul's servant, but he didn't do good. He, he did evil. So, and it cost the priest his life. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, so, and he could also be referring to the fact that, hey, I lied to the priest, and I put the priest in a really bad situation because I did lie to him, and that was wrong of me. So we, we should uh, take that into account. 
But then the third step he gives is to seek peace and pursue it. We, we aren't supposed to be content with just, oh, I hope I have a peaceful day here. No, we're supposed to be looking for peace. And again, that, that's not absence of conflict. Uh, I think so often Christians want peace and we, th- and we think, I just don't want any drama. I don't want any crisis. I, I don't want to have to stand up against anyone. That's not what David's saying. He's saying we should be seeking wholeness in our own lives, in the lives mm-hmm. of those around us. And sometimes that involves conflict. Well, yeah, and it it and if you're if you're because to me it's like if you're if you're just wanting to not have conflict, mm-hmm. then you're then you're you're seeking happiness, right? And you're you're not seeking purpose. And where that sense of shalom and wholeness, you kind of get a sense of purpose in there. Yes, and it's not just about oh, I can skate through my days without having to get frustrated by anything where's my beach with my little umbrella drinks yeah yeah i I, don't get me wrong that sounds like a great thing to do but at the same time uh how many people am i really helping am i am i promoting that that wholeness in my community right if that's what i'm seeking for myself and there's a time to rest on the beach with umbrella drinks (laughs) right right i i hope so that's tasting and seeing everything (laughs) there's a season but yeah i'm not saying not condemning anyone who goes to the beach and drinks umbrella drinks but if that's the the goal of your life. That's all you want. Yeah. yeah. No, the, I think, I, I think actually in this, the idea is that you, you take everyone in your community and go to the beach. And find, you know, but. So, uh, after COVID, <laughs> if there's anyone who wants to finance that, we will we'll, have a Raven Creek retreat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not up for a cruise. <laughs> no, but. I don't want to be stuck on a boat with people. I may not know. <laughs> Sorry. I might love all of you. I might not. I don't know. Um, <laughs> But yeah, but that's what makes this psalm so interesting is because David, at the point where this is being written about, he is alone. Uh, he's lied to the priest. He's endangered the lives of the priest. Um, you know, he, he, he saw evil and he turned away from it, but he didn't do good. And so the rabbis see this psalm as David's confession, his, him renouncing his acts at this time and saying, I messed up. I, I should not have done this. I should have been better. I should have um, trusted in God and actually relied on his goodness. Instead, I tried to manipulate things my own way. And again, that's the rabbis reading into it with this, this background from, from Samuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, can we see that much there? Um, I don't know if I can definitively go, absolutely, that's what David's doing here, but I think we can see hints. And sometimes that's all all we get. Yeah. And so verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are turned uh, toward the righteous or toward the righteous. Uh, and in verse 17, we hear that the righteous, when the righteous cries for help, the Lord hears. And so we don't have David being righteous yet in the story, but there is going to come a point where there is going to be this little glimmer of righteousness that we see in the story, because in David's flight, during the middle of it all, he remembers his aging parents. And despite the threat to himself, he goes and he gets them and he takes them to a safe place or what he hopes will be a safe place. And we're going to talk about what that, uh, whether it was or not. But taking care of your parents is an act of righteousness. And, you know, recognizing that his parents you know, weren't going to be comfortable in a cave, um, this is a good son. Uh, I hope my daughter does as well. Uh, so, but but notice the language he's talking. He uses when he talks about the righteousness, the eyes of the Lord, the face of the Lord, the Lord hears. I mean, these are all ideas of God being close, of being very mm-hmm. near, this intimate relationship. And and what happens when David takes care of his parents? That's when the prophet Gad shows up and speaks. When God tells him uh, through Gad. This is what you need to do. This is the next step. Mm-hmm. And so the, the rabbis believe this is what David's referring to here. And, but he doesn't leave us with this kind of pie in the sky. Oh, look, follow this theology and this formula and everything's going to be okay. He, he actually, um, he's very realistic with his faith. And that's one of the things I do love about David is when you read his Psalms, 
they aren't just, hey, everything's grand and wonderful because God loves me and I followed the three steps in the latest self-help book that had Jesus' name in it, you know. Mm-hmm. The, it, latest, the latest Christian caricature building book? Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. And he, David's not like that. I mean, when you read his Psalms, you can tell he's really wrestling with the real world issues of his time. And he's wrestling with himself. And that's that's the other thing that I love about him is he he he's talking about yeah the enemies do this this and this and the, it cost me that but this is my heart and my heart it, this is what I'm feeling and and he he always looks inward to try to figure out what's wrong with him even in the middle of trying to to work out what what he should do about his enemies so in verse 19 he says many are the afflictions of the righteous now somebody used to tell this to some of these um prosperity gospel preachers that, that tell you that if you do all the right things, everything's going to be great. David right here, many are the afflictions of the righteous. So maybe mm-hmm. if you aren't afflicted, you aren't righteous. Just a thought. Well, <laughs> you know, in the verse before that, uh, you know, the, uh, where is it? Uh, 18. The, uh, I'm using two different Bibles so I keep, <laughs> that are verse, the mm-hmm. verses are lined up differently. Um, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and those with the crushed, uh, those crushed in spirit he delivers. That doesn't mean, this is, (laughs) that doesn't mean that if you're having a great week, you have to stir up a bunch of brokenness and put on a show in order to have praised or worshiped the Lord. Right. Sometimes we can just be thankful. Yes. Sometimes we can have a good time worshiping the Lord. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, I, I've seen it. You've probably seen it. And it's it's like it's like this formula that that you go through at at a lot of church services. You have your opener, you know, big bass Yay, booming drum. <laughs> then you know you go through a couple, and then you know you kind of slow it down. You have the the song that's, oh, I'm such a terrible person. Woe is me. All this, and it's like you're it's it's the stirring up of this just fake manufactured brokenness that and. I know I'm going off on my own like little <laughs> tirade here, but this is, it's one of my big pet peeves that mm-hmm. it's sometimes we can actually just come together and celebrate the goodness of the Lord. Yeah. And that's okay. That doesn't mean you're not doing everything right. It doesn't mean, you know, it, because it's, it's not like you're saving yourself anyway. Right. You know, that's God's job. <laughs> exactly. But, but let's, Let's actually be happy about it on occasion. And I'm not saying you should always just have happy, upbeat church services. Right. Absolutely not. There's a time. There's a season. There, there are times when maybe you need to enter into that some of the, those more broken places in your worship and your personal day-to-day mm-hmm. as opposed to making sure we stir it up during the weekend and... Well, and I'm, you know, get our, our fix or whatever you want to call it. While you're talking, I'm wondering is how many times do we rob people of the opportunity for true repentance whenever we create it for them Mm. every week? Yeah. I mean, and if we can just feel it in kind of this, this kind of esoteric, uh, detached way, because it's just in the environment we've created and it's not personal, are, are we really letting people repent or encouraging people to repent of what they've actually done in their personal lives. Um, you know, and I'm just throwing it out there. I, I don't, I'm not for sure because, you know, I think there's times, like you said, there, there, we need to just, we need to be okay with just being happy. And I think, you know, we kind of came from the, the, the guilt and shame side of Christianity in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, say, I struggle with it. I oh mean, yeah. I really do. It, it's, it's, I, I'm not saying that I've got this down. Right, right. But I'm saying that whenever we work it into our formula, mm-hmm. it's that, you know, that we just... Be- I was about to make a really obscure movie reference, <laughs> but I don't know if anyone else is going to get it. But but we 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 sit around and, and, you know, we don't literally hit ourselves with whips, but mm-hmm. we do it with the music. Oh, yeah. And... Uh- and, 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 you know, and, and there is a time for, for corporate mourning and corporate grief and mm-hmm. uh, to, to gather in together and, and to say, yeah, we are broken as a community. And th- there's something uh, to that. And I, I think that's very biblical. But at the same time, like you said, if that's all we're doing, are, are we honoring the goodness of the Lord? Right. Uh, there, there comes a time to admit that God made creation good. Mm-hmm. 
he yeah. and, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and there's there's a time to admit that he's making us a new creation mm-hmm. or that he has made us a new creation or we, you know, we're in the in process i don't know exactly how all that works <laughs> i i you know, well, but, I'm not going to try to to build a timeline for sanctification and justification and all that stuff right now. You know, it's thankfully God has it under control and we can trust Him with it. Yeah, and His ways are not our ways, thankfully. So we don't but, have to understand His thoughts completely. But that ties us back into Rosh Kadesh uh, and that celebration. That's part of the reason why this is read here is that the, there there's the the seasons and and it is that 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 progressive move where David just like I said before. As a king, he waxed and waned in greatness because sometimes he reflected God's glory more fully than he reflected it at other times. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we, in our personal life, we we reflect God's glory very well. I mean, for me, it's about two seconds at a time every seven months or, you know, if I'm lucky. <laughs> uh, but then there are times when we don't. And so, but the, the point of Rosh Kadesh is that there's going to be that, that renewal and that we can always anticipate, just like the moon always returns, we, if, as long as we're turning back to God in repentance, then there is going to be that renewal, and not to forget that in that renewal we should celebrate the beauty. Mm-hmm. And so, that, like I said, that's why this psalm is, is read during that time. And David, I think he, he's capturing very well the, the cycle of, hey, things have gone wrong, and a lot of his psalms really do. Things have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. People have hurt me. I, I'm, I've been a miserable person. I haven't handled things right. But God is faithful. God is faithful. And that's the point. God is faithful. And, mm-hmm. and we have to hang on to that. Not only is he faithful, he's good. And I think so often, because we haven't been taught the fear of the Lord, mm-hmm. and to have that awe, we've just operated from that place. I didn't think about this earlier, but one of the examples uh, that just sprung to mind is, you know, we, we had a dog uh, that dad guy, um, you remember JJ, the Sheltie. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yep. he was, oh, we got him. He was such a mess. He was, a, it, Shelties just have such long fur and it was all matted. Mm-hmm. Well, he had been abused before um, he came to live with us. And I basically took him over and I started brushing him out. And when we would start out this process, this dog would lose his mind. And I had bite marks all up and down my arms. And, mm-hmm. But I was determined. And I stuck with this dog every day. And we, we would brush and brush. And each time I just, you know, maybe get a six-inch patch of fur. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as the weeks progressed and the months went by, that dog learned that he didn't have to fear me in that, oh, she's going to beat me, she's going to hurt me right. kind of way. And it got to the point, but before he died, if I would pick up a hairbrush to brush my hair, he would flop down on the side yeah. waiting to be brushed. And, and, and he had to be taught. And I'm not saying that we're, you know, we're like dogs, but there, there is that kind of similarity that sometimes the fear we have, um, we got it from the wrong place. Right, right. And, and we, we have to work to overcome it. And hopefully, uh, we've got somebody who who will teach us, and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. for those of us who aren't involved in that kind of God is this huge taskmaster. Master, we 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 need to we need to be teaching others. So mm-hmm. there's kind of that mm-hmm. implied uh, command, and that's how we remain part of the community is that we learn from each other and we teach each other. But um, verse twenty, it's it, it's a curious verse. Uh, he keeps all his bones, and not one of them are broken. Um, it, it's like out of the blue, we've got all of a sudden we've got this reference to, um, to a skeleton. <laughs> I mean, what in the world? But I think what David's trying to say here is, you know, this is a God who's so close. You know, we've gone through that face and the eyes and the, the ears, it, but God is so close that he, he, it, it, and he's protecting so thoroughly that it, it goes down through the skin and through the muscle and it, even to the core of our being is being protected that we aren't subject to, to being harmed when God is that, that close to us. And how do we stay close to God? Well, it's by, by fearing him, by doing the things that he's asked us to do, and, and by humbling ourselves when we've, we've messed up. And so there, there's, it, it's just interesting that David, in this time that we've been taught that God was just you know, he was so far away and he wasn't intimately involved in the lives of, of people on a day-to-day basis. 
uh, and we've kind of got this idea of the Old Testament God being that, that far distant God. Here's David saying the exact opposite, and he's coming against all of our, our preconceived notions of who this Old Testament God is. This is a God who cares about your bones. And, and then you think about David being on the run and him being in those rocky hills and in the caves and in the cracks and the crevices between the rocks. Broken bones were a big deal. Yeah, well, in back in the day, that was a fatal injury. Right. I mean, a broken arm or broken leg, especially if you're by yourself. Yeah, forget it. I mean, I, I was actually reading something on Facebook the other day, and it was talked to, um, I wish I could remember the name of the woman who gave the presentation, uh, but she was talking about the first signs of civilization. And by her estimation, uh, she saw the first signs of civilization as a limb that had been broken, set, and healed. And she said, this tells her that even in those ancient times, someone cared enough to, to take care of this person who could not function on their own. And they brought them food, you know, and made sure that they had something to eat and were protected from the elements or the mm-hmm. wild beast. And how amazing it is that we as humanity will take care of each other. Yeah. And so. Now, I do have another question about this. Okay. Um, <laughs> Because it does say that, you know, the, uh, where is it? Of course, I set it down and lose it. Don't do that. Um, it says, the, the, uh, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut mm-hmm. off the memory of them from the earth. Now, mm-hmm. is the question I have here, does this have anything to do with remembering your ancestors and burial practices? Because you would put someone in the cave until their bones all that was left were bones, and then you'd gather them up and bury them later. Oh, man. You're going to make I'm me I'm really lie. curious if which, there's something to that. Which verse is that? Because I'm, you read it at the JPS, didn't you? Uh, yes. Um, 16. Okay, yeah. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil and cut off the memory of them from the earth. Oh, I... I have no idea. You, you know, I, actually, my, where I, my mind goes to at the beginning is the Rephaim and the, the uh, Nephilim. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of interesting that for, it seems like their memory was almost cut off for sure. a, a long period of time. And it's only been recently that scholars have been taking their existence. Uh, but, of course, that goes back to ancestor worship. That's part of why they worshiped, because the demons were the disembodied spirits. And so now we have evidence that Grandma's still hanging around, uh, you know, <laughs> years. Yeah. So, I mean, that that kind of—I'm curious about that, because I do know that how they treated the dead was very specific. Wow. And it did revolve around the skeletons. I am, like—there are so many implications with what you just said that I would have to, to play with, because— yeah, ancestor worship was a huge deal because there was power in it. And when you mm-hmm. realize that these ancestors they were worshiping were, were hybrid supernatural human beings, then it, suddenly it makes sense mm-hmm. on a whole different level than what, you know, it wasn't just people being silly. Right. And so, yeah, I, that's some good speculation. Okay, well, somebody needs to make a note of that so we can come back to that later <laughs> in, in a wrap-up episode or something. Um. I'm going to go ahead and go on with my notes because I know I'm talking about. <laughs> so. Fair enough. That was just a question. I'm, just, I'm curious. That was No, I mean, I'm curious too. Now, I actually made a note of uh, verse 21, the difference between the ESV and my art scroll. So it might be interesting to see what the JPS does because even though the art scroll is a Jewish translation, it's not the same as the JPS. Sure. So the verse 21, I've got affliction will slay the wicked. That's ESV. Uh, the death blow of the wicked is evil, according to the art scroll. Uh, one misfortune is the death blow of the wicked. The foes of the righteous shall be ruined. Okay. So um, basically this is um, the evil the wicked men will do is going to come back on them. And they're going to, you know, they're going to reap what they sow. I mean, so this is an ongoing biblical principle that, you know, you, you do good, expect good. Um, God doesn't even have to do anything because the people have done it to themselves is what he's saying that God doesn't even have to exact justice because the, the, the providential design of the earth is that the, the evil comes back on them themselves. And because this is the, the method and means that, um, that God uses and, and 
the rabbis say that this is a reference to David not slaying Saul. He didn't have to slay Saul. He didn't have to enact God's justice hmm. on his behalf. Saul's own hubris is what gets him into trouble. And so David is able to, to watch, and God is able to watch as the events unfold that Saul actually put into motion himself. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can kind of see that. I do find it interesting that it says one misfortune <laughs> is the death blow to the wicked. Yeah. And it kind of makes me wonder if maybe it's the people who, like we talked about Jacob and Esau, the people who are short-sighted versus someone who has, vision. has a vision for the future, that if you, if you don't have a vision for the future, you know, if your goal is just happiness and one, you know, one thing gets in your way, your whole day is ruined, or you haven't stored up for the winter, then you have a hard winter mm -hmm. and then you're done. Yeah, I think they were translating it that way because the, the word there um, is in the singular. It's interesting. It's in the feminine singular. Um, hmm. So that, that's, that's interesting uh, that it, it could be, yeah, it could be just that, that one thing. I mean, but, you know, we're back to the grasshopper and the ant. Um, right. You know, right. I, it's, and I think that's the really interesting thing about the Bible is we see so much truth that's woven through that's not simply isolated to the Bible. And this is part of what helps it be of impact into societies that, that aren't just Jewish, they aren't just Christian. It's that you can look at these truths and you can see that they're universal, mm -hmm. but then you get to see where God steps in and he makes them so radically new and deeper and, and more meaningful. Mm -hmm. And you get to participate in the fulfillment of these things. And that it's a beautiful thing. So. Verse 22, the, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, of course, David's on the run. He's taking refuge in, in the rock. Mm -hmm. um, David, you know, he, he wrote this at the most uncertain time of his life. And for him to, to say this is, it, it's mind-blowing. Because think about the journey he's been on to this point. He has gone from being a shepherd who lived in these hills, who took care of the sheep, and he was the forgotten brother at the family feast. He went from being nobody to being a heartbeat away from that throne that he saw every single day. He's married to the king's daughter. Under A&E tradition, the son-in-law very likely could inhabit the throne. Everything was lining up for, you know, it just had to fall into place. He needed one yeah. more thing. He just needed Saul to die. Um, but, you know, it's the truth. And details. Yeah, details, details. Uh, but the, 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 the thing is, it's all ripped away in a second. And he goes right back. He's not just even back where he started. He's, he's further behind than when he started. Yeah, now he's in the land of the enemy. Yes. It's not even... He's not even in the right place, right, uh, right country anymore. Having to beg for weaponry, having to beg for, for bread. I mean, at least when he showed up with Goliath from watching the sheep, he had the sling with him. Sure. Uh, and so he was better prepared for his future at that point in time th than now. I always and, wonder what happened with that. Like, uh, did he just give up the sling? <laughs> I mean, it seemed a pretty effective weapon. Right? I mean, who knows? And, but you know, I was thinking about this whole... this whole cycle and how often is it that people you know they get so close to what they believe god has called them to this this vision that that god has given them and it can even be the right vision and then everything falls apart mm -hmm. and that's the moment they lose their faith that that's the moment that it all falls they fall apart mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. shattered and they don't feel like they can ever trust god again because you know all he had to do was this one thing, this one thing, and everything would have been perfect. Right. And God chose not to, or the people around them were allowed to do something that was contrary. And now, you know, it could be that church plant. It could be uh, the great missionary event. It, it could be whatever. And, and they become so dis disillusioned with reality that, it, that they, they can't even function. And so... For David to, to be in the middle of the situation and to make these claims about God, I mean, he had every excuse to give up on God. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he had no reason to, um, 
to hang on to his faith at this point. And we're not even told why he hangs on to his faith, even in the psalm. We, there's no clue or indication given. And I mean, so now you understand, okay, that temptation to, to lie to the priest, uh, the temptation to run to the Philistines, God's enemies for mm-hmm. protection, all of this makes sense. Because I have seen people today who've done the equivalent of this act. Oh, yeah. And we will condemn David for it, and we won't recognize how guilty we are in our own life. I've probably done the same thing in some metaphorical way. Uh, I just didn't take time because I didn't want to know. So, I mean, I'll be honest. But, you know, he remembers, and he remembers his obligations to his parents in the middle of this because that is the right thing. And and it was just that one little sliver of obedience, that one little glimpse of, hey, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm going to do the right thing, even though it puts me in danger because I love my folks. This is when God steps in and says, okay, here's your next step. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, the next step isn't a glamorous next step. It, it's not even a step that looks like it gets David any closer to, to being the king of Israel. It's just the next step. Mm-hmm. And so David has to um, David has to, to walk in faith in that moment. And he, he picks up on that, that move of God towards him, and his faith is renewed. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where a lot of us, when, when God moves towards us with that little glimmer, instead of going, "Hey, okay, I, I, I can see where we're going, God," we go. This doesn't make sense to me. That can't possibly be God. And we stop and we just kill off a little bit more of our faith. Right. And, and I, I think this is why David is so impressive. And I think this is why the ancients did love him so much. It's not that he's perfect. It's the fact that despite all this, he continues and continues to say, I can't see a way forward but I'm going to trust God to make one, and then God comes through. Well, yeah, and that's actually, I mean, and that kind of dovetails with what we talked about. I don't remember exactly when, but we talked about it sometime where there's a lot, a large portion of where people screw up in the Old Testament is that failing imagination Mm -hmm. that they think, I can't see a way out, so there's not, I can't, this is the only way I can see it, so if God's going to do it, he's got to do it this Mm -hmm. way, and then God says, no, that's not the way it's going to be done, and then they're like, Oh, well, of course, you know, there's another way that I didn't see because God's bigger than our imagination. Well, and I think so, we that, see David's imagination failing when he goes to Nov and when he goes to, to Gath and we, we see him going, this is the only way I see. And, but then there's that, like I said, that moment. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's all we need. If we can just find that moment in our life where we can grab hold of the truth of God's promises and actually act on faith instead of being overwhelmed by our circumstances. And, you know, not to sound preachy, I know it's probably too late, but, um, you know, the, we have to remind ourselves of the truth of who God is. And this is why it's important we stay in the word. This is why it's important we are in that mm-hmm. community. We need people in the community to speak truth over us. We need people in the community to speak truth to it's not just about receiving, it's also about giving. And we also need to trust that and have faith in who God says we are. And he says that he loves us, he says that he redeems us, he says he has plans and purposes for us. All of these promises that seems just so out there, we have to believe that they're true. And when we surrender that, because the, our current circumstances don't reflect this truth, we, we, instead of going, circumstances are subject to God's rule, we turn around and we say, God's a liar. Mm-hmm. And, and that includes, I know, I'm, I'm getting ready to step out here where I probably shouldn't. The moment we start saying, hey, I'm just a horrible, sinful creature, even though we have repented and we've turned to God, and he says, you're my redeemed, you're my loved ones. Mm-hmm. So we have to accept that. We, yep. we have to believe that. And so, you know, it, and it is that tension between I'm a horrible person who can screw up sometime and I am a child of the king. And we have to hold both those things in tension. Now, here's the, here's the deal. A lot of us want to say, I'm just a horrible person, so I've got to manufacture that drama you were talking about. Right. And then some of us want to go, oh, well, I'm just a child of the king, so I can do no wrong. Right. Yeah. So, nah. <laughs> and it is finding that balance. But I, I, I guess I've been having a lot of conversations late with pe- lately with people who... Um, 
are falling in one of those ditches. <laughs> yeah, and, and a lot of people who who don't want to accept that what God says about being his child and being loved is equally true as needing to repent and needing to seek mm-hmm. salvation. So mm-hmm. um, you, you you can't have faith in one and not have faith in the other. Right. So that they're both true simultaneously. And if you don't believe both those things, then you are going to wind up in those ditches, and it's awful hard to dig your way out sometimes, yep. which, again, why you need community, because you know, we pull each other out. Yep. So exactly. Anyway. Well, cool. Well, that sounds like a good place to break. Um, so everyone, if you want to be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC on all the social media, ravencreeksc.com to the website, let us know what you're thinking and, uh, hit us up on iTunes. Give us a review and a rating and don't forget to hit subscribe and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the faith and other oddities podcast, a Raven Creek social club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.